Dedicated to Game of Thrones and a song of ice and fire, you're listening to Podcast Winterfell, part of the DVR Podcast Network. Check us out at DVRPodcast.com. Welcome everybody to Podcast Winterfell. This is Mike. I usually do the deep dive with Tracy tonight. Uh, I am with Mike Cole and Mike Livingston. Two gentlemen who are historical fiction authors and historians, and I don't know if I really want to give your bios, but I'm glad to have you. Let's start with you, Mike Cole. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm not a uh, historical fiction author. I do fantasy novels, uh, military fantasy, so if like Harry Potter joined the Navy SEALs, uh, that's kind of what I do. And I just uh, recently signed a contract for my first sort of straight-up medieval fantasy, which will be coming from tour. Um, in February, and I got hooked up with Mike Livingston uh, because I uh, I used what little fame I got from uh, starring on a CBS TV show called Hunted to get a book deal doing straight up history. I love ancient military history. Got super into it from wargaming and really really wanted to con- contribute to the field. And uh, once I got the book deal, you know, look, I I have a lot of enthusiasm and I've certainly worked really hard at the field, but that's not the same as being an experienced professional of many years. So I was really looking around for history professors, people who actually did history full-time for a living, who would be willing to mentor me and kind of help me uh, along my process. And I was really, really lucky to meet Mike because Mike, um, and he'll introduce himself in a sec, is that same combination. But he is not just a a fantasy author, but also a full-time professional professor of history. So that's how we met. And we just got back from doing research in Greece with Kelly DeVries that you had on the show uh, a couple weeks back. Yeah, he was great. Uh, it was really, you know, it's great to talk to, you know, people that are actually kind of going out and and going and looking at these things. I mean, his his story of you guys' vacation was pretty cool. So uh, talk well, to us. It, was, it wasn't a vacation. I, I do want to say that, uh, and I also want to say this. When I, when I first did this book, uh, I had no intention of going anywhere. And Mike invited me down to the Citadel where he teaches and very gently and then slowly, less and less gently, you know, made it clear to me that if you don't go out and see the battlefields and stand on the battlefields that you're working on, you're doing it wrong. And if you're serious about really exploring what happened in ancient warfare, you need to go stand where those battles were fought. Why is that important, Mike Livingston? Tell us a little bit about your stuff. Well, so, you know, first of all, I have to say uh, uh, Mike is a terrific publicist. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't pay him anything, which is pretty fantastic. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I invited him down here for absolutely selfish reasons. I just want to get to know him. And uh, but we do have a lot in common because, uh, as Mike said, I'm uh, I write historical fantasy. Um, my Shards of Heaven series, a third book is coming out in November uh, is built around the uh, uh, the rise of Augustus Caesar and a sort of secret history of what's going on there that in- involves a lot of fantasy elements, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant and Poseidon's Trident and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and so I, I, I do that, but then you know my day job, as it were, is to be a professor of uh, medieval and now increasingly ancient uh, warfare. Uh, and in addition to you know all the literature apparatus that comes along with all that uh so yeah we we really mike and i hit it off uh, very well and i've been friends with kelly devries 
uh, for a very, very long time. And uh, yeah, we more or less, yeah, kind of triangulated on, on poor Mike that, uh, <laughs> that he had to get over there. And, and, and I will uh, just reiterate a, a point that Mike was making there, which was that this was not a vacation. And I'm, I really want to underscore that in case anybody's listening from the IRS. Um, <laughs> I'm the one that <laughs> I put that out there because it sounded like fun, but not even Kelly said it was a vacation. So, well, yeah. anybody, anybody who knows me, anybody who knows me knows I am absolutely against fun. I am against joy. There will be none of that on any trip I go on. Um, yeah. So the reason we were we were kind of so insistent is um, is our 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 own experience. Um, you know, look if you really. If you really start to understand how um, real warfare functions, not um, not just sort of making it up in a vacuum, but you know, on the ground warfare, you have to start on the ground. Um, every battle is the ground. It all starts with terrain. It all starts with geography, and you can't understand what's happening until you understand what is there. And you know, this is actually something that uh, Kelly learned from. A, uh, another colleague of ours, an amazing historian named John France in Swansea University. And Kelly kind of learned it to his, to his heart and soul. And he, at one point, many years ago, was like, Mike, if you're going to study the Hundred Years of War, you know, these battles I was working on for that, you better get your butt onto that battlefield. And, uh, and I've yeah, now sort of uh, uh, converted Mike Cole here to, to the cause. Uh, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference to actually stand on the field, whether it's it's Gettysburg, whether it's, uh, you know, the Battle of Agincourt, the Battle of Crecy, which I've, I've worked a lot kind of controversially on, um, or on one of these ancient battlefields, the Battle of uh, Kinescephali or something. Um, it makes a, a massive difference to understand what it was really like. You don't get it from, uh, you know, from a map in a book. Uh, I'll tell you something else because Mike Mike isn't going to advertise himself. Um, he has another <laughs> approach to history that I really took from him and that I will now use going forward. And it's it's so simple um, that you would think everybody does it, but everybody doesn't do it. And um, I don't think there's a name for it, but I, I call it burning it all down. And all that means is that when Mike approaches an historical question, he really doesn't want to be influenced by the modern scholarship because modern historians can make their own errors. So what he does is he literally tears everything down and he goes right back to the primary sources, be they literary sources, material sources, archaeological sources, and such, um, the geography, hydrology, those kinds of things, and retranslates documents, even if they've already been translated, so that he can, um, if there's errors in translation, which there often are, he can spot them and then comes up with his own conclusions. And then, and only then, does he check it against the modern scholarship. Um, and that approach, he mentioned that he'd worked on Crecy um, controversially. He's, he's being very modest. He really upset hundreds of years of scholarship and basically proved pretty conclusively that um, a lot of it is incorrect. And this simple, simple approach of sticking to the primary sources really, really made a difference. And once, I, once he kind of taught me that. And these are the kinds of things, again, that like no matter how good an amateur you are, unless you're dealing with someone who has decades of professional experience in the field, you're not going to think about this stuff. Um, but once I took that approach on and began examining my own work in that light, I, I can't tell you what a difference it's made um, 
in the quality of my historical writing and and in how I approach everything related to history. Okay, this is interesting, and 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 I don't want to uh, to to. I, because you know game of thrones didn't happen there's no real battlefields for the battle of the bastards to go to right and like right. we know that you know one of them like uh let's say thermopylae right the you know the famous hot gate story and you know it's been turned into a movie and and the spartan story has been told over and over and over and apparently if you go there now the water level is different so there's different you know so there's there's things we, we were there we were there on this trip okay yeah, we went there of course yeah. <laughs> okay. If all right. If you're if you're a historian and you go to Greece and don't stop at Thermopylae, like, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, what are you like, doing? They, take, they take your license away. I mean, and, and Mike, like, we did. We of course we do have the selfie with Leonidas's statue. We couldn't resist. Of oh, course. Yeah. Oh yeah. We of have, course. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, absolutely. But, but like you described, Mike Cole, you know, you described your work as as if Harry Potter joined the Navy SEALs, which is a fantastic description uh, from what I've read, and and. <laughs> You know, Livingston, like, there's a lot known about Alexander, but we also know that he paid most of the people who are writing it down. So I'm kind of interested in, at some point, you know, you have to apply your own experience to it, right? There is a value to that, but even though there's no battlefield for the Battle of the Bastards, there's still some research that can go into it. So I'm kind of curious, like... I don't obviously for every story and every writer, there's going to be a different line where your experience takes over from the history that we have available. But I'm kind of interested in how you work that line, how that works for you. And if you were going to do something, you know, purely fantastical, like what kind of research could do you think George could do for Game of Thrones? So I definitely want to say that there's a common misconception that fantasy involves hand weight. Um, and the most effective fantasy, um, and I, it, it certainly I try to do this on my own, but let's take some of the big shot examples from novels. Let's take Brandon Sanderson. Let's take Pat Rothfuss. And let's even take George R. R. Martin. For people to be properly transported by a fantasy narrative, it has to feel real to them, right? It has to, they have to feel themselves reflected into that story. It has to extrapolate logically. If it doesn't make any sense, um, if it's just, if anything can happen because it's magic, it's impossible for the reader to gain um, possession of the rules to feel that the characters they care about are at risk. So all really effective, uh, take a look at magic systems. I talk about this all the time. If you look at Pat Rothfuss's King Killer Chronicles, how incredibly scientific the sympathy magic system that Pat Rothfuss introduces, or look at um, Brandon Sanderson's Allomancy. Look at Naomi Novik in her Temeraire novels, how she extrapolates the social impacts on Victoria's society from the fact that long wings, these incredibly effective dragons, will only take female captains in this highly, you know, misogynist society of Victorian England. Um, that kind of logical extrapolation helps a reader feel connected. So I feel like there's a tremendous amount of historical research that is required if you're going to make fantasy really ring true. Wow. That's a good answer. That's a good answer, man. <laughs> uh, so uh, kind of... My- <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, to kind of follow along on, on, uh, on sort of combining you know, something you asked and, and, and the Mike's talking about here, um, you know, good historical research um, is never, I think I had to quite put this, you're always exploring through a topic, and mm. <clears throat> especially the way I do it. And so as you are exploring through a topic, whatever, you know, that, if that's a battle, if that's 
um, a, a battle method, if that's, you know, whatever it is, sociological aspects, political aspects, you're, you're moving through it. And as a, as a fiction writer, when I'm kind of thinking about how am I going to apply this, I'm, I'm moving through it with kind of eyes wide open, right? And looking for those things that stand out, that make this different from my own experience, different from the experience probably of my readers, um, that I can then move into this world that I'm building, what, however fantastical it is. Now, obviously, with you know, Shards of Heaven, it's you know, the, the rise of the Roman Empire and, and, and this kind of stuff. And um, uh, you, you mentioned my, my earlier short story, which is Alexander the Great. Yeah, we know a lot about that stuff. We know a great deal about it. But if, of course, I'm, sort of, I'm, I'm filling in my own gaps. And you know, what, what does it do to the Battle of Actium, for instance, which is a, a known battle? We know a great deal about the Battle of Actium. What does it do if one of the sides has the trident of Poseidon? Like, well, that kind of, you know, this is a naval battle. That makes a difference. Um, (laughs) You know, so how do I how do I kind of extrapolate that forward in a way that follows logic? I mean, as Mike said, you can't you can't skip on the logic. You skip on the logic and your reader skips out. Uh, So you want to have that kind of focus throughout, whether you're looking at, you know, historical stuff or fantasy stuff. It, to me, it's all the same. I, I apply all the same techniques, all the, all the same kind of principles, whether I'm trying to figure out what happened at the Battle of Agincourt or I'm trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do with this fantastical battle scene, whether it's, you know, my shard stuff that's set in history or one of my things that's completely fantastical, total secondary world. It should still fit together. It should all still nest properly. Well, you say that you're... What did you say? Writing through? How did you say that? Uh, exploring through, reading through. Yeah. There you go. Exploring yeah. through. Great. Yeah. That's a really interesting way. I wrote a, a historical fiction novel set in high colonialism in Tasmania in 1850. Right. And and it's about, you know, it's really about the Tasmanian native experience and how that was a microcosm of colonialism the British essentially wiped out that whole population in a 50 year span. Um, and, and I've never been to Tasmania. Um, there's only so much you can learn, you know, and I wanted to do it, but at, so at some point I just kind of had to, to free myself from the things that I didn't know. So I could write about the emotional experience of, of that, time you know because the emotional experience seemed like such a kind of extreme uh human experience you know that Mm -hmm. i really kind of wanted to explore that experience excuse me uh and and it didn't really seem like there was a way to do it now to do it in a contemporary story to really like talk about kind of the crushing uh overwhelming unescapable this this unescapable kind of feeling that it doesn't, it didn't, I couldn't figure out a way to put it in a modern story. So, I mean, is there, like, what leads you to, to writing, what leads you to kind of telling these stories? Is it just because you have read a lot of history and like, that's what's in your mind and you want to incorporate it? Or is there some thing that we can explore through fantasy or through historical fiction? Or, you know, is there something that we can explore that we can't really explore through straight history? I mean, I, I think that um, it's no secret that people use speculative fiction, both fantasy and science fiction, to deal with issues at a remove, because it allows you to comment on things that may be hot button um, without 
you know, confronting them directly and then risking pissing off your audience. If you look at um, my Shadow Ops novels, a lot of the action takes place on a forward operating base or FOB that's in uh, an alternate magical dimension where goblins are the indigenous, uh, you know, people who live there. And um, that's a very unsubtle commentary about real life FOBs in, Af in Iraq and Afghanistan and the relationships between U.S. soldiers and the, uh, and the indigenous people living in those places. Um, I, I think that it'll, it gave me a little freedom to explore my own experiences downrange in Iraq without necessarily hitting it straight on. You know, Marion Zimmer Bradley famously said that if you want to make a political statement, um, rent a, a hall and distribute leaflets, it's more honest. Um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that sentiment. Um, I, uh, I think that pretty much all fiction is political in, in some sense or another. But you can bring your reader in a little more gently with speculative fiction in that regard. So, yeah, and I think that your description of what's going on with your emotional, the emotional idea you're trying to convey, that is an absolutely legitimate reason to write a piece of fiction. You want to, if you want to address, and in fact, it's probably even a better reason than this is awesome if you want to address some underlying critical aspect of the human condition, then you're really getting into the realm of, I think, what literature is for. But isn't there some sort of an inherent issue with taking a, a group of people and recasting them as goblins? I mean, I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear you talk about that because you're talking about translating a personal experience. Um, you know, it, that, that seems, that's a, that's a really interesting way to talk about it. What are the kind of limitations of that? Are, is there is there problems with that? I don't, I'm, how does that process yeah. work? Obviously you're running, you're running the risk of pissing people off, right? Because it's a ball. Sure. Comparison. What are you, what are you saying that the native people in, in Iraq and Afghanistan are goblins? You know, how dare you? Um, <laughs> right. But on the other, but on the other hand, it's a really cool statement. Um, it's a really cool way to explore the shitty perception that occupying troops have of the indigenous people that they're uh, surrounded by. And again, right. to go back to history, it's outside my period. But when I read about Principate um, Roman legionaries writing about the, the Brits uh, when they're stationed over in Britain and how they perceive them, these people whose culture they're slowly adopting and assimilating and, and, and becoming part of, it's incredible. And it's a really good way to broad brush those occupying attitudes. Um, I mm. think that even now we, we recoil at the inherent racism in Tolkien's depiction of like the Haradrim, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's instructive for how, you know, people personify the other in those kinds of books. So it was a risk I was definitely willing to take. And so far, at least, nobody's um, called me on it. Nobody's <laughs> come after me about it. But it was definitely something I thought about. Well, but that's I mean, if you're if you're talking about it as a means of exploring the mindset of the occupier as opposed to the occupied, that's just a completely different. That's fascinating. I hadn't that was not the way I heard it. Right. And it's everybody's right, right, going to hear it you differently. Know, look. This is the thing, man, and I know you know this, Mike. When you write a book and you publish it, it's it's out of your hands, brother. And like <laughs> the, the public is going to perceive that book the way they perceive it. And if they're percent, and of course nowadays, unfortunately, in my opinion, the public loves to extrapolate personal things about the author based on what's written in the text. And and you've seen people get ripped to shreds on social media. Because people believe that because they've portrayed something in, a, in text that they are therefore, you know, personally endorsing it. Larry Niven has a great quote that we we have a word for people who believe that the, um, the that an author necessarily shares the attitudes of the characters in his novel, dot, 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 idiots. Um, and I, <laughs> I tend to agree with that. 
but I'm also not, I'm also smart enough to know that, you know, that's the risk you take anytime you take a position. But you know what, Mike, this is art. And if right. we all, if we all create art first and foremost with the idea of, I don't want to upset anybody, you're going to get really shitty art. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just going to, it's just going <laughs> to suck. It sucks for everybody at that point. I mean, you can't create based on fear. And whether that's, you know, fear of, of uh, you know, upsetting the critic or the reader or whatever, uh, you just can't do it. And I think we all kind of have to bridge that gap at some point where we say, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take it over here. And that's where it needs to go. That's where I, I need it to go. Um, it's what does the job for me. But I know that it might upset people. And as Mike said, you know, it, so be it. Um, and sometimes that that. Uh, their their bother will be um, completely legitimate. Uh, sometimes it won't, and you know, Lord knows, you you made the baby, you made the book. You know, what is it? What does it grow up to be in people's eyes? You know, Lord knows. Um, I mean, I got a uh, I got a one star review on on Shards of Heaven, the first novel, uh, which again is set like it starts after Julius Caesar's death. It's all set in the years BC. And uh, I got a, a review that's like, well, this book is terrible and I hate it because I hate Christian fiction. And <laughs> and I'm like, it's B.C. Uh, what, how how do you get there from here? How did you do that? But, yeah, what, yeah, what are you, you going to do? You know, I mean, uh, they, they got their issues just like I got mine, I guess. Uh, you know, well, it is like what it, it is. In Temples of the Ark, you you open with with bisexual Alexander and his longtime yeah. companion. And this is yeah. something that is a part of the historical record in interpretation, right? That you aren't the first person to read the, you know, to read the, the stories and say, Oh, I think those guys seem to hang out a lot together. So, but, <laughs> but you did, you roommates. do like, yeah, roommates. Exactly. You yeah. do like you open with it. I mean, you put it out there right up front and and you never you don't re explain it you don't shy away from it you just kind of accept that as a part of the record so how do you I mean is that just a is that how you really feel or is that just like you decided you were gonna take that tack for this story or I'm interested in how your interpretations of the record become a part of the story the because there's another part in also in Temples of the Ark because of course I had to go and research the temple that you go to. Right. And yeah. and and I read, you know, your your thing where you talked about how in this temple there were the row of sphinxes. And if you go there now, the sphinxes are all offset and I, yeah. no spoilers or anything. But that's a part of the story. Right. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll just leave it there. You know what yeah. I'm talking about. You read. I know okay. what you're talking about. So, I mean, is that just kind of like you're reading the history and you're aware of it? Where is that kind of a decision on your part as a historian to say, I'm going to take this seriously. Yeah. So, well, that's the whole kind of idea of the shard series um, is alighting that gap. Right. You know, where I say, OK, here's the historical facts. This is this is all the stuff we know. Well, we don't have an explanation for X, Y and Z. Well, if I thread this story right through those needles, I get this really cool thing that also, yeah, explains why the sphinxes aren't aren't lined up. Because um, they're not. They aren't. Uh, if you go to that site, they're not lined up. Um, well, I have looked you know, at the pictures, my friend. Believe me, I was amazed. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That's exactly what I want. Um, you know, I would, and I, I, I almost think of it in my case as, as uh, 
as Easter eggs in many re- respects, you know, that um, somebody will, will read one of my books or whatever and not, they'll think, oh, this couldn't have really happened or this character wasn't real. Um, one of the main characters through all three novels is uh, uh, Cleopatra Selene, who's the daughter of uh, Cleopatra, the great Cleopatra, and Mark Antony. And people are like, oh, they're, you know, she's, this is not a real person. Like, no, this, she was real and she was amazing. Uh, absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary human being. And uh, I like, I like sort of, I happen to know this stuff. And using fiction here is a way for me to bring that knowledge to people. Um, and how I kind of construct it a lot of times is as I am exploring through history and you know, okay, I'm going to write this story about Alexander um, and his encounter with uh, the king and queen of, of Kush, of, of Nubia. That's where Temples of the Ark kind of started. Um, so, you know, what are the historical facts? And reading every account I can find, um, you know, looking at every map I can find, every archaeological thing I can find, just, you know, moving through it and finding where I can draw, again, thread those needles and come up with something that, like, that is, that is an awesome story. That's got the arc I want. It does all that stuff. And along the way, of course, I'm, I'm having to make judgments. I mean, as you said, I, I start that story. And, I, and again, I don't make a big deal out of it. It's just, you know, yeah, he wakes up next to Alexander. And it's clear that they are in a relationship. And that's, I think that is true. I mean, I think, uh, I know that bothers some people, uh, but it doesn't bother me. And, you know, when I read the historical sources, I think, yeah, they were extremely good friends. Um, (laughs) they were, they were beloved companions and, uh, I, there's no doubt at all in my mind and it just made sense to me. I'll, this is a great place to start the story. Um, this gives us a sort of introduction to Alexander. Um, I do think it's probably going to surprise some of my readers. Um, I'm fine with that. It's, I know it's going to turn off some of my readers. You know, they're going to like in the first page, they're going to be like, Oh my God. Um, (laughs) and they're gonna be like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to read anything like that. Well, okay. I didn't want you as a reader. Um, so, you know, to me, it, it was, it was an interesting way of getting you into the history. And I kind of hoped in my mind, this is going to be something that's going to surprise you and give you a sense that, okay, I might know Alexander the Great, but I'm going to get a different perspective than I thought I had. And hopefully the story carries that forward, obviously. Yeah. It seems to me like a lot of historical and military fiction readers go, it seems like the writers and the readers go in the opposite direction. It seems like a lot of military and historical fiction writers start as either military people and history people who then write fiction because they want the opportunity to fill in blanks and be more emotional. And it seems like a lot of readers start with the fiction and then are like, wait, that's based on something? And then they go and find out, you know, what it is, what FOB actually means, you know, or about Alexander's longtime companion. Is that your experience too? Do you have readers who say like I read this and then I went and found out you know I don't I mean how how does that work for you is in terms of your readership I don't I've know certainly, if, I'm sorry go ahead Mike well I was gonna say I, I was just gonna say I've certainly seen it a lot in my readers that they they write and they say oh my god I had no idea that ancient Rome was like x y and z 
and they and they love it. Um, and I'm imagining the same is 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 true for you, Mike, isn't it? I mean, I, it, I, I, I I was thinking more along the angle of like me identifying or bringing people into the loop of like the world of the military. Um, yeah. Because it's not you're writing uh, at least what's published, right? So I'll be entering sort of obliquely your field shortly. But at least for now, I'm doing this modern military fantasy stuff. And um, one of the things I really like about it, and one of the things I really liked about the TV show um, Hunter that I was on, because that was a law enforcement thing, is I don't know if you guys remember when um, Admiral Mullen uh, was the um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he made that statement, I think, at the Air Force Academy that there had never been a bigger divide between the civilian and the military populace. Um, yes. And uh, I remember that very, very clearly. And uh, one of the things I really, really liked about writing my shadow books and also being in my show was that it is that here I am able to bridge that gap and able to take a large audience or, you know, uh, maybe I'm flattering myself as large of as an audience as I have, <laughs> um, and, uh, give them a glimpse of something and hopefully give them a glimpse of something in a medium that they can engage with and be involved with and ask themselves questions, you know, like, Oh, is this what the military is like? Is this something I would be interested in being involved in? How would I like to be involved in it? Do I disagree with it, disagree with it? I just loved being able to put that voice um, out there. I think at the time that my Shadow Ops books came out, and I, God, I'm probably speaking out of school, so please forgive me. if um, Because Brad, Tor Brad Torgerson um, had not yet published his first book when I came out. Now he is publishing with Bain, and I know he's still in the Army Reserve. But at the time, I think I was the only person wearing a uniform who was, you know, publishing at that time in the field that I can think of. And I say that with the full awareness that I might be on shaky ground. There may be someone out there who'll come out and say, no, it was me. Um, so I was really, really pleased to the extent that I was able to, like, you know, show an audience what what that life might be like and give them the opportunity to ask questions. Yeah, the the. I mean, and let's I want I do want to talk about that in, in Game of Thrones. I want to talk about battle writing and game of thrones and i also want to talk about the translation of television uh kind of looking at game of thrones and also the show rome um you know the oh. the, the battle writing rome. is so fascinating because you know i'm i've uh i mean we used to fight skinheads all the time when i was like a punk kid in high school you know but like i've never been in the army i've never been in uh you know any sort of a, a real tactical battlefield situation in that way um and and so to read i'm 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 always fascinated by reading those those stories of people who have been in that uh and mike cole like you talk about that you are the stuff i've read of yours has a lot of magic which i'm sure you weren't dealing with people shooting fire out of their fingers but um but it's there I, that it seems to me like that's one thing that that george does pretty well uh you know some of his battles especially on boats for some reason i don't know that george martin has ever swung a sword on a boat but he writes about it really good um you know that i think that's one thing that that he does pretty well and one of the things that i've enjoyed about the books is is getting a little more of that sense of being in the battle and really the difference between paying attention to the thing that is happening and threatening you immediately in front of you and having a sense of the larger scope of where everyone else is kind of at and what's happening within the battle. 
to me, I don't understand how it's possible to hold those two things in, in your head at the same time when people are trying to murder you and you're trying to... I don't understand how it is possible to hold all of that in your head at once. Uh, but that's one thing that I really get out of battle writing. So I want to talk a little bit about what it's like trying to to put that on paper. It just seems to me like it's like trying to write about sex or something. It just is like, how do you, it's just like, how do you really, it's just such a visceral experience. It's impossible to translate. And yet some people manage to do it. What's yeah, that so like? I, Talk to me about that, Mike. Cole. I have a theory about that. I have a theory about that. And I'll actually use Mike Livingston as an example. Um, uh, Rock and roll, man. Yeah. I mean, it's easier. You're right here, man. So I can throw you under the bus. Yeah, um, go ahead. I think, I think the answer, Mike, is empathy. Um, I think that the thing that, look, George R. R. Martin is not a dwarf. George R. R. Martin is not a haughty, blonde-haired queen who's having sex with her brother, right? He's not those <laughs> things. Um, he will never be those things. He's not even, he's not a, a great swordsman. I don't think he ever has thrown a sword on a boat. Um, but he, I think what George R. R. Martin has is an ability to step outside his own skin, think about other people, really think about other people's goals, and sympathize with them even when those goals are repugnant to him, right? Um, and I think that that is just empathy, and it's, it's an incredible skill, not just in writing, but anywhere in life. So I'll give you a perfect example. I, I, you know, everybody knows I've been downrange in Iraq. I've done patrol law enforcement. I've done a lot of mixing it up. I've been rocketed. I've been blown up. I've had all kinds of stuff happening. Well, Mike Livingston um, has not had those experiences, and yet when we're on the battlefield um, at Pydna and Kenekephali out in Greece— Mike, if anything, I think had a better understanding of the decisions soldiers would have made minute to minute based on the terrain, based on the battlefield conditions. And um, you would think now one of the things I, I, I always you know, I put in our marketing packages when Mike and I put books, uh, book proposals out is I always say I'm a graduate of the Joint Special Operations Intelligence course uh, given by the um, Defense Intelligence Agency, which specifically trained me to use terrain. Uh, to meet the goals of special operations direct action teams, right? So I know all about ground and, and how ground works and how it works for fire teams specifically. Mike doesn't have that training. And yet he has, I would argue, as good, if not better, an ability to understand the kinds of decisions soldiers are making, the universal decisions soldier, soldiers are making across thousands of years in relation to that same terrain. And when I ask myself, well, you know, so, so people have this idea that military experience is this thing that you have to own and you can only own it by having the experience. And, and Mike, I'll tell you, it just ain't so. Um, I think that the military experience is universal and that you, by watching, by living in a country that has a military and watching the military on TV or having your own military experience that is every bit as authentic and, and, and valuable as my own having served. And I think that when you approach there are universalities of how people are. And if you are really approaching it with empathy and you are thinking about, and you're able to really think about how another person, not you, someone different from you perceives the world. And that's a really, really difficult thing to do in my experience. It's especially different when you've been trained as I have to be judgmental. I mean, in law enforcement, we refer to other people as bad guys all the time. Right. And Mike, uh, Mike Livingston really has that empathy and he has it in spades. Um, and you, you just have to spend five seconds uh, hanging out with them on a battlefield, and I'll say, well, I think that, you know, this unit turned this way, or I think they took this, this sort of line of march, and he'll be like, eh, I don't think they would have done that, and I'll be like, why don't you think that? And as he starts talking, I'm like, oh, shit. No, he's right. <laughs> um, 
And I really think that that is the undersold attribute. It is empathy, empathy, empathy. Well, I, I uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I'm, I'm better than other people. And Mike is, Mike is absolutely right. Um, <laughs> No, I, I, I would, I would answer that actually kind of in a, in a different way. And, and, and thank you, Michael. That's very kind of you. Um, I think, I think the reason George can pull it off, um, cause, cause you're absolutely right. I mean, he pulls off some of this stuff in, in a way that is quite surprising. And, 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 uh, I, I think Mike, Michael, you did a great, you know, yeah, he's not a dwarf. He's not Cersei. He's not, but he can be those things. Um, John Keats, the, the famous poet, John Keats once wrote of William Shakespeare. Uh, he said, William Shakespeare, the, the difference between Shakespeare and other people is that Shakespeare has negative capability. And what he meant by that, essentially, I'm, I'm really boiling this down, is that Shakespeare had the capability, the most rare human capability, which is to not be himself. And if you kind of you know, think about Shakespeare's works or something, I mean, you know, this is a mind that could invent the character of King Lear and Hamlet and any other character you can imagine, right? And these are all, and they are, Hamlet's real. I mean, not just the fact that it's based on Amleth, which is, you know, from Saxo Grammaticus way back in the Middle Ages, but, you know, the character of Hamlet and the play of Hamlet, that's a real friggin' dude, mm. you know, with, with real issues and, you know, real, like, that's a real human being. And, um, but it's not William Shakespeare, whoever, you know, uh, you know, whatever William Shakespeare was like in real life. I don't think he was like Hamlet. And um, I hope not, because I, I friggin hate Hamlet. Um, I'm, just, I'm just like, just, just stab the son of a bitch. Come on, Hamlet. Get over it. Um, but uh, but, you know, he had that that negative capability. He could be not himself. And it's and it's kind of sadly, I think, uh, somewhat of a rare gift. And. Uh, I think George R. R. Martin has it. I think he can actually truly know, and, and you know, Mike's using the word empathy, to truly kind of know what it is not to be himself. Um, not just, to, not just to, to empathize with another person's experience, but to really actually kind of in a real way live that experience of not being yourself. And the fact that he can do that to get the experience, but then write it in an accessible way, which, of course, is, is actually, I think, based out of the same stuff, right? He, he can be not himself, in other words, to be a reader as well. So right. not only can he, he have a feeling, okay, this is what it must be like to be Tyrion Lannister in this moment. But he also knows this is how it would be like to read these words, if I'm not myself, about what Tyrion Lannister is like. And between <laughs> those, those two gifts, he can give us Tyrion Lannister. And we all read Tyrion Lannister, and we, holy shit, Tyrion Lannister is real, right? Yeah, you know, for he's sure. real, for um, sure. and and he's it's it's an it's an extraordinary extraordinary gift, um, and and lucky for us, um, you know, he's he's uh, he's sharing it with the world. Um, I absolutely love George R. R. Martin's works. I mean, I I really do. I'm, hey, I'm uh, let me. Mike, let me add something onto that um, because I'm I'm worried that uh, I don't want people to to um, develop the impression that like this is a gift, right? You either have it or you don't. I don't have it. I am naturally wildly judgmental. Um, I, if someone disagrees with me, they're the Antichrist. Um, so <laughs> I have to work my ass off to have empathy. And the, the example I want to give you because you brought up sex before um, is I wrote a sex scene from the point of view of a woman 
in my fourth novel, Gemini Cell. Um, and the story demanded it. And it wasn't until I sat down and started tackling that scene that I realized that I didn't understand the first thing about women ex how women experience sex. I mean, I've been a sexually active person since my teenage years, but like most males, unfortunately, you know, she, if, if the woman is making all the right noises and telling you that she's happy, you assume that everything's working and you don't think about it. Um, and that's kind of horrible and, and embarrassing to admit, to be frank. But the truth was I hadn't thought about it and I hadn't thought about it in detail. And it wasn't until I sat down to write the scene that I realized I had no idea of what was going on emotionally, what was going on physically in the kind of specific level I needed to evoke the scene. And so I had to do some really awkward, awkward research where like I wound up interviewing my best friend's girlfriend. My God, I want to crawl out of my own skin. <laughs> because I had to like get down to the nitty gritty. What exactly are you feeling physically? What does that feel like? Where are you feeling it? You know, like all of that horribly awkward stuff. And then, like, I was, my knees were knocking together when I, um, when I uh, uh, gave that, uh, Carrie Vaughn, who's the author, uh, uh, another fantasy author, was kind enough to read it and let me know at least that I wasn't being a creeper. And then uh, my editor at Ace Rock is, is a woman, and, and uh, thankfully she didn't bat an eyelash on it, so I feel that I succeeded. But I just want to point out that for folks who don't naturally have that sense of empathy, um, you can do it. In fact, you must do it if you want to write effectively. You just have to be willing to do the work. And the work is often really emotionally stressful because stepping into the skins of people who you don't understand, may not necessarily agree with, and don't have a lot of experience interacting with, um, you know, that, that's challenging. And, yeah. and uh, to, build, to build back off that, you know, and, and come back to kind of George R. R. Martin, too, um, there's inevitably research, right? Even though, you know, Martin might be able to, you know, become not himself and get a sense of what life must be like for Tyrion Lannister. The background setting of all that isn't something that, that, that George R. R. Martin was born with. I mean, he wasn't, you know, like came out of the womb. Can't wait until I can write because I got this fucking story. <laughs> right. This was right. This was something that, that just as Mike was, was researching what it's like, um, you know, for a woman having a sexual experience, you know, George is having to find out what is it like um, what is the background apparatus material I need to create what it is to fight a battle on a Greyjoy vessel, right? What is it like to be in, you know, the Battle of Bastards, right? You know, I mean, the as those things are, that's, well, that's a bad example because that's the TV show. But, uh, you know, sort of to get yourself into a medieval battle, you know, that's not something anyone is innately born with. Right. And so we're all having to do research and, you know, Mike's trying to sort of say like he doesn't have empathy or whatever, you know, like, yeah, well, he does. So uh, <laughs> and, he, and and the fact of knowing where your limits are is, is of course, intrinsic to that, um, that, you know, yeah, you know, I have a blind spot. And so I need to fill that in to actually kind of get into this experience. Um, and good writers are going to be doing that. And the fact that that George R. R. Martin does this, of course, is as plain as you can see across his works, because there's so much history in there, even though it is a fantasy, an extraordinary depth of history throughout. You know, it, you use Mike Cole, you use the word universals. And I find that a really, I mean, it's both a fascinating thing and also just very vexing because even the universals are experienced differently by different, like jealousy you know, can be caused and, and experienced in so many ways. And I don't see how you could not refer to jealousy as a universal 
Um, and I think that's just, it's really interesting to think about empathy, even in relation to universals, because no one experience, you know, there's different kinds of hunger, right? So even when you're talking about something that is a universal, there is still an element of empathy, of individualized empathy that you have to be able to, to at least try to approach. <laughs> yeah. And history, history is a great way to understand this universality that we're talking about. I'll, I want to point out two examples that really struck home for me. Um, and one is, I can't remember if it's Akkadian or Sumerian, but one of the earliest pieces of writing that we have um, is uh, a, a woman passively, aggressively sniping at her brother for making, because she's having to buy all of the food for sacrifices to the gods. And, you know, she really would really appreciate it if he would ante up and like, you know, do his fair share. And I, um, I, I don't, sadly, I don't have any sources to hand, so I may be misquoting, you know, uh, some particulars there, but the general sense of it's correct. And it's so obvious, like it's so, you know, it, it could happen in 2017. Um, mm. uh, another example I really want to give is um, from the life of the consul uh, Lucius Aemilius Paulus. Who's, uh, was the Roman commander at, at the Battle of Pydna, which is one of the battles that Mike and I uh, have researched together. And he put his wife aside. He, he left her. And uh, his friends, and this is in Plutarch's uh, life of uh, Aemilius, you know, they were like, dude, what are you doing? We, we loved her. Um, and, uh, and he, you know, he's got nice shoes on at the time. And he, or probably would have been sandals, but you get the idea. And he, um, he, he pulls one off and holds it up and he goes, is this... Uh, this looks good to you guys, right? It's a nice shoe. And they're all like, yeah, you know, it's a good-looking good shoe. And he's like, looks comfortable, huh? They go, yeah. And he goes, well, it isn't. And the only person who knows whether or not it is is me because I'm the motherfucker who's wearing it. <laughs> so maybe you don't tell me that things were going great with my own wife. Does that sound all right with you? And um, and uh, everyone's kind of like, oh, okay, dude. We, we get it. We get it. Um, but like... I'm sorry, man. That conversation, of course, I'm paraphrasing horribly from the from the Latin and Greek in this case. Um, Plutarch wrote in Greek. Uh, is uh, you know that's a, that is there is that conversation could very easily happen in 2017. Um, Absolutely. And in fact, right. So I, so there really is universality of experience, and and nothing, not but nothing, drives that point home better than reading historical sources. Yeah. I want to talk uh, a little bit. We've been going almost an hour now. I, you guys are, this has been a really great interview. I really appreciate you guys hanging out with me today. Um, I want to talk about the translation to television a little bit. Um, and, you know, everybody's got their opinion about how Game of Thrones has been translated. I like to think about it kind of with people who are aware of the, the record in relationship to the show Rome because there is such a, his, a vast historical record for that they were able to draw on for that show, whereas Game of Thrones is drawing strictly on George's thing, right? But then, of course, they also have the historical record of Warhammers, for example, to go and look at, you know, as they're going to build this new prop around. The, okay, so... I kind of, I, I like to think about, and you know, I don't know that the comparison has ever drawn any like useful conclusions. I just like to think about it. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about that, how you think the translation to television has gone. Uh, you know, if you think what you think they've done right and wrong. Um, and if you think that there is a difference, because this is the thing too, that 
I have experienced Westeros, which didn't exist, and Rome, which did, in exactly the same way. My experience of them has been the same, which is to mm. read about them, to watch movies about them, to mm. talk to people about them, right? Mm. But but I have not, and I've been to Rome. The Colosseum is cool as shit, but it's it's kind <laughs> of like seeing you know the Grand Canyon or something. Like it's just sort of this landmark that that it didn't. Um, you know, I didn't walk in and suddenly have a first person vision. You know, so I have yeah. experienced Westeros and Rome exactly the same. So I'm kind of interested in 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 how how you think that translation to this different medium is it? Did they do it right? Did, did the guys in Rome do? I don't know. I I don't know. I don't. I guess I'm trying to come up with a question here, and I'm failing terribly. <laughs> but I, I I think you understand where I'm at. We do. Yeah. Um. I mean, you know, from. From my perspective, I, I kind of approach it the same way as well. Um, you know, Westeros and HBO's Rome, I, I experience the same way. Um, they they are, as you said, dealing with a source text. Um, I mean, in Rome, it's obviously multiple texts, and in the other case, you just have uh, you know the books of George R. R. Martin. Uh, but yeah, they are dealing with a source and are trying to extrapolate from that something for the screen. And and in both cases, they are able to flesh it out visually. I mean, we are visual creatures and the way they flesh it out visually makes it, I, you know, I think more real regardless of, uh, of, you know, how you feel about books versus movies. It makes it more visceral and, um, and, and in a sense kind of makes it more impactful in that regard. Um, I loved this series Rome. I mean, I, I really did. Um, I had shards of, of heaven was already uh, drafted when I saw Rome uh, one of my students knew I was writing these novels and said, oh, my God, have you seen Rome? I said, no. And they said, well, you need to watch it because uh, my two of my main characters in the series are uh, Titus Pulo and Lucius Varenas, um, who are historical guys. And uh, they're like, are they're main characters in this HBO show. And I'm like, I don't get HBO. But I went and got the DVDs <laughs> and watched it and immediately went through and changed my, uh, uh, my description of Titus Pulo and Lucius Varenas to match the characters in the series Rome. Cause I thought, well, well shit, if anybody ever makes movie rights to my book, I want those guys cast as Pulo <laughs> and Brainus because they, that's fucking Pulo and Brainus now. You know, I had these characters invented in my head and they played that, played them so well that they became more real to me than my own invented picture. Right. That's neat. Cause um, you'd done the research. I mean, you didn't just sit down to just make that shit up. Like you had done, no, and that's really yeah. that's really interesting. That even somebody coming into it with a, a professional level of research was still so ah. dramatically affected by their portrayal. That's was, fascinating. Yeah, it was it was stunning. And then you know, in the same regard, you know, frankly, um, Tyrion Lannister. Uh, it's Peter Dinklage, man. I mean, like, I can't. I may have read the books, you know, before I, I saw him on screen, but now, uh, no, that's, that's Tyrion. I mean, you know, Gandalf in my head, I, I read Lord of the Rings, Jesus, I was like in the second grade. I don't know, it was crazy, a long time ago. <laughs> and, and you know what, it's Ian McKellen now, and I can't, I can't knock that out of my head, you know, even though decades, it was somebody, you know, else of my invention. And I, am, sorry. I, think, I think that happens a lot, lot with us. So I think it's not a lot different. 
as far as the effect of moving from any source onto the visual screen, it has these kind of reverberative effects. I, I, I just, I'm less concerned. One of the things uh, that Mike and I talk about all the time is I'm a real populist. I want history in particular. Um, fantasy obviously has a larger audience, but I want history and real history, um, good history, to be electrifying large audiences because real history is every bit as exciting and dramatic as Game of Thrones. Um, everyone knows that Game of Thrones shares a lot. The intrigue uh, in Game of Thrones shares a lot in common with the real-life Wars of the Roses. I'm reading, I read constantly, in fact, about the, the struggles of the Diadochi, the, the successors who squabbled over um, Alexander the Great's empire after his death. And that also has everything from, from uh, powerful women, war leaders, to, um, to you know, marriages and backstabbing and treachery. And there's no dragons, but uh, I don't think you really need them. And uh, you've already seen from Rome that, you know, that story absolutely lends itself to theatrical representation that can electrify a large audience. What I love about translations to television is that even when they're not done perfectly, they still reach so many more people than books. And um, Game of Thrones, well, Song of Ice and Fire, already had a pretty big audience um, from its dead tree days before it took to the screen. But no one can argue how much wider its reach is now. And even more importantly, how many people have been turned on to fantasy altogether who would never have given it a chance and how it's fueled the whole nerd subculture that all of us love so much, why people go to Comic-Cons, why people are investing in superhero movies. Like all of this becomes this incredible self-looking ice cream cone that results in me having more people to hang out with. And uh, that makes me super, super happy. <laughs> so the fact that these things, the fact that Rome happened and was as successful as it was, I wish to God it had gone longer than two seasons. The fact that Spartacus happened and was successful as it was. The fact that Gladiator, you know, for all of its imperfections, even Braveheart, which I hated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we hear another wrong. hour. But the, point, but the point I'm making, Mike, is that anything that takes these stories, um, both real and speculative, and gets them to a wide audience to curry that interest, to get those dollars into the field so that more people can create and study. And, and so that when I look up at something and love and go, that I love and go, that's so awesome that there's more people standing around me going, I know um, <laughs> that, that to me is what I love the most about, about these translations. You guys should plug yourselves better than I have. We'll obviously be putting links to all your stuff uh, in the show notes, you know, and we'll be tweeting, all your guys' stuff and where people can find it and how they can read it. But you should talk about it once because you talk about it all the time. You got an elevator pitch, right? Go, You're Mike. Right. You go first. No, I said it first. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, <laughs> right, so, um, I, I'm, I'm Mike Cole, Mike with a Y, M-Y-K-C-O-L-E. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Mike Cole, spelled that way. You can friend me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Mike Cole. My website is MikeCole.com. Uh, I have two trilogies currently published, the Shadow Ops trilogy and the Reawakening trilogy. If you're going to start with any of my books, please start with Gemini Cell while it's my fourth book published. It's the first in terms of story. I got three more coming from Tor. The Armored Saint will be the first one. That'll be coming out in February. And my first military ancient history book that I researched with Mike and just got back from Greece is called Legion versus Phalanx. It explores how the Hellenistic Phalanx fought the Roman Legion in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC. And then I'll be publishing from Osprey some to probably also around february 2018 i'm not entirely sure just yet and hopefully i'll have more to announce soon oh and i uh start on cbs's hunted 
which wrapped in March, but you can still watch all the episodes for free at CBS.com. You also have like a super sweet looking website, dude. Your website is really nice. Well, thank you very much. I, I, <laughs> I paid, paid an excellent developer handsomely to do that without any input from me whatsoever. Oh, well, they did a great job. I am going to read that Phalanx series a dozen times. I'm excited for that. Mike well, Livingston. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Michael Livingston. Uh, I am a uh, professor uh, in my day job. Uh, but at night, I put on a cape and, um, and I write <laughs> historical fantasy novels. And uh, my first uh, trilogy is Shards of Heaven. It came out from Tor. Uh, the third book, Realms of God, comes out this November. Uh, there's a, a prequel... Uh, that uh, that Mike has talked about here, Temples of the Ark, which is uh, available on uh, all kinds of ebook distribution things, uh, which is which is good fun. That's Alexander the Great stuff, and uh, yeah, I write a lot of nonfiction, um, mostly with uh, military military warfare stuff uh, anymore uh, across the medieval and ancient periods. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I am at medieval guy. And uh, you can find me on the web at michaellivingston.com. And uh, pretty much from there, you can get me however you need. So uh, always looking for more readers, more fans of this stuff. Read Mike's work. Read my work. Oh, hey, uh, both of us will be appearing at Dragon Con this weekend. Um, and uh, to the extent that Mike will let me, I'm going to be uh, gluing him to my hip. So you should be able to find us at the bar if you can't find us at... Um, at our various panels. If you go to the DragonCon website, uh, use the DragonCon app and search on our names, you'll see our schedules uh, posted there. But if you're going to be in Atlanta this weekend for DragonCon, please don't be shy. We're both really nice guys. Uh, one of us is nicer than the other, but we're not going to name names. And uh, <laughs> feel free to come up and, uh, and say hi. Excellent. I really appreciate uh, it, you guys, and everybody who listens. I mean, you know, I've been on the the series for the for going through a song of ice and fire. So, a lot of our listeners have literally listened to us talk about every chapter in these books. So they know, like you guys know, I've I've read the stuff, and you know, I enjoyed it. If you've dug a song of ice and fire, you will definitely like these guys' work. You should definitely check it out. All the links will be in the show notes and all that stuff. So. Thank you very much, Michael Livingston. Thank you very much, Mike Cole. This has been Thank Podcast you. Winterfell. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Podcast Winterfell. Podcast Winterfell is a part of the DVR Podcast Network. You can check us out at dvrpodcast.com. Become a patron. Go to Patreon slash DVR. Follow us on Twitter at WinterfellPod. Follow us on Facebook at Podcast Winterfell. And follow the DVR Podcast Network at DVR Podcast.